Hey, Ro, I hey. definitely have a question for you before we get started with this episode. Great. What is it? Go. Do you know any places where I can find maybe an affordable website that's really easy to use that I'm making for a project I'm working on? I'm glad you came to me because I happen to know just such a place. Wix.com. It is the perfect place to get a gorgeous template. And it's going to take you like five seconds. You will impress your producer. You will impress the whole creative team because they're going to be like, I thought this would take you like two weeks. It's going to take two hours. Yeah, so go to Wix.com and get started. Well, I'm definitely going to have to look into it. Thank you so much, Ro. I mean, don't look into it. Like, do it, man. Uh, so today we're doing a little time traveling, yes, taking are. you back, back to the beginning. And who's that I see? It is me, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Hello. Hello, Ro. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing great. This has in- infinitely improved my day today. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad we could do that. Yes, of course, Ro. A lot of things have changed here at the LabCast. As they always do. Would you like to feel fill myself and the audience in. Yeah, I mean, this season, we're kicking it, I guess, new school. We're interviewing all of the creatives from our summer incubator. We're talking to them about the podcast ideas that they incubated over the summer. Um, And like, what that was like. What was their creative process? Like, how did they birth this new thing into the world. So this is exciting. That is very exciting. I'm excited to hear their stories. I wasn't a part of the summer incubator, so this is all new to me. (laughs) Very excited. What have you been up to? What did you do this summer? Well, this summer I took a course in Paris, which was really exciting. It was Black in the City of Light through Gallatin. Beautiful. Which was an African-American history course. Nice. And then I spent my first summer in New York. What else did you do this summer? I also made a chat book as a result of that time I spent in Paris. I love it. It was very introductory, definitely a new medium for myself. But But I feel like that's such a Parisian thing to do. You know, go to France, find yourself, write some poetry. Speaking of cities, our guest tonight actually wrote a book and then made a podcast about one of his favorite cities. We are speaking to Carrie McClelland, who, as you noted, is an author and now podcast host about his process in the incubator, which I'm very excited to hear about. I've never been to San Francisco. Awesome. Carrie, Ro. how you doing? I'm good. Yes. Yes, I'm doing great. So good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you for coming all the way down to WNYU. Absolutely. My pleasure. There's so many um, broken posters on the walls. It's exciting. That's not yeah. where I thought you were going. Yeah, no. I was <laughs> going to say so many like studious, you know, studios. No, it's not <laughs> so many studios. There's so there's so much, uh, so many different kinds of food being eaten outside. Yes. 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 But don't you feel like it has like a 90s feel? Like I actually was feeling like I like... have not been cool enough to know all of the things that are on the wall here. So that is, that is my <laughs> most, my main reaction is like some of these things feel like they are 20 years old uh, and I wasn't cool enough even then. Well, you were uh, stacking degrees, were. man. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. You wear many hats. Too many. <laughs> Too many. Wait, can we count the hats? Sure. You are a lawyer. Yes. You are an author. Yes. You are a human rights advocate. Yes. You are a filmmaker. Right, yeah. And for professional um, ethics reasons, I have to say... Uh, uh, that I'm not practicing right now as a lawyer. But yeah, I okay. trained as a lawyer. Yeah. But you got that knowledge. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the real reason to be a lawyer, just to like know the yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's know? mostly to seem bossy as opposed to actually <laughs> know anything. That's the the critical thing. So well, I'm let's glad get that into my, it. My story is I was in San Francisco about uh, four, almost five years. So oh, I wow. was there. Um, it began when I was doing work uh, with Google on a in in the wake of the Arab Spring. I started doing work to try to evaluate what degree YouTube was. Um, a tool and how it could be a better tool for human rights advocates. There was a lot of like cell phone videos suddenly being posted online. There were a lot of, um, there was sort of an onslaught of protest video, a lot onslaught of videos of people being able to capture police soldiers, um, much of it coming from the Middle East for the first mm. time. And that was sort of because technology had given us the ability to do this thing. Mm. But the platforms, much in the way that they're sort of like not very well positioned today to deal with the questions of speech and democracy were, were caught back-footed then. And so the questions were, how do we protect human rights advocates and how do we um, keep ourselves from um, getting confused by disinformation videos that uh, foreign governments were starting to be able to post. Where? So those were the two competing questions, and that was a lot of the work that started bringing me out there. All right. Which took me to law school, which took me to Stanford, which took me oh, to wow. the Bay Area for about um, uh, five years, which where I met my wife, where my family's from. Your whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I had spent my childhood there. Yeah, it was sort of a homecoming because I had been there until I was seven about – um, That's not like, what you would expect, though, that you would go back to your home, right? Your your hometown. Yeah, but it was like a very imagined place in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Like New York, I'd grown up in New York in my own, like, DNA. But I'd had these years till I was seven, like, running around in fields and understanding what trees look like. Mm. And that was only What's from California. Tree? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, they, they, <laughs> they don't lose their leaves in California. <laughs> um, and so that... You know, there was sort of this imagined political space and an imagined family space that was like, as a, you know, grandparents on my mom's side uh, were from the Midwest. Uh, you know, we're two Jewish kids who couldn't have had a home anywhere else. And mm. my parents kind of started their fa our family there. And the politics of that space were also very important to them being able to do what they were able to do. Um, and be the kind of family that they were. And then my wife and I met there. And so there's this way in which, you know, it was the roots of a family and also a place that was kind of getting torn apart slowly um, over that period of time. So I came very hopeful, came with all these dreams of being participating in the tech industry in a very mindful way. And then watched as the sort of economic story post the Great Recession created this huge inequality gap that we can see versions of here in New York and versions mm. of in any sort of thriving city in America where the success of the city ends up creating this dynamic where working people particularly can't even afford to live there anymore. Mm. And so that's the sort of struggle of these industry towns right. like San Francisco for tech, L.A. for the entertainment industry, D.C. for lobbying and participating in politics, New York and finance. It's just very hard, I think. Yeah. Um, for and us to figure what, out what a sustainable urban life is anymore. And that drove me to do this project that brought me onto your doorstep. Well, talk to me about the book first. Let's start there. So you, yeah. you wrote this book, yeah, and it's, it's called? It, it's called Silicon City, San nice. Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. Um, and it's done. A, it's had a nice year. You know, it, it came out last year in October. The paperback comes out, to, plugging that, comes out in a couple weeks. And Stanford is a stan, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what happened? Tell us about it. So it started as um, research I was doing at law school. I, I sort of was sitting there 
living in San Francisco, commuting down to Stanford, and then trying to watching this sort of unraveling take place in the Bay Area, watching it literally on my doorstep in terms of homelessness or in terms of friends leaving or in terms of work I was doing as a, a volunteer lawyer, as an activist, and, and seeing clients I was working with unable to sort of keep their footing in the Bay Area. And, and it drove me to realize that also the, the as lawyers, we were sort of ill-equipped. As thinkers in Stanford, we were ill-equipped. We all kind of drilled down into our discipline and couldn't really connect the ways in which it wasn't just housing. It was also health. It was schools. It was um, public transport. It was any of the ways we'd sort of told stories about working parts of the Bay Area were unraveling. And us being so issue-focused meant that we couldn't really connect the dots to other people who were allies in, in other areas. And so that was the thought behind the book was, can I create the conversation for the community that we're not having? Can I mm. put on into one common project and put in front of each other people from very different experiences um, who are actually all going through this same struggle together? And it includes people from it's an oral history. So it's, it's first person voices. It's their monologues, essentially, on the page. And everybody's jumbled together from major investors in tech, major engineers who are innovating either huge green tech solutions or the self-driving car or virtual reality, um, to major uh, political and cultural voices from the city who are sort of important luminaries from decades long ago and um, important activists at the time right now. And then I think also most importantly, just sort of people who are working and trying to make a living there. And that can range from an Uber driver to a longshoreman who's you know, the shipping industry has largely left the Bay Area to um, a tattoo artists to on and on and on. The people who are really sort of make up a community and are there um, feeling like they're spectators to something that um, uh, is is coming and that they're not ready. They're bracing for. Yeah. So how exactly does this book and taking all the stories and as you made, as you said, it's an oral history. How does that then tie into the podcast that you are able to? Do via the ink. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the, the the research process was just interviews. I mean, it was probably very not very different from what I would have done if I'd started this as a podcast project. So I just sat in people's homes, recorded them for hours and hours as we had a conversation about whatever brought them to the Bay Area and whatever they were going through right then. Um, so I had left with all this tape, uh, much of which I, I had never intended to turn into any kind of project. Um, uh, beyond the book, I, I had I had been relieved to be without a camera. I'd been a filmmaker before this and done a number of documentaries, but the process of not having like a, a monster to set up in people's homes that would observe them and make them feel uncomfortable was great. Just this tiny recorder that would sit in their home or their backyard or wherever they chose to sit. Um, so that was what I had, and then suddenly it was the desire to turn that into something where. Um, after sort of a year of talking and lecturing on the book and sort of touring it and meeting audiences, I realized there was this other way to get um, the subjects directly in, in front of an audience and to be heard directly. And that was the desire of turning it into a podcast. There's this other added benefit, which has been sort of fun in the editing room of realizing that there's a way to also like layer the voices together. So you can mm -hmm. now have the Uber driver, the cab driver whose livelihood has been displaced by the Uber driver and the guy who's inventing the self-driving car all kind of sit and talk together about how they think they're um, changing and being changed by the dynamics in the Bay Area. And so I think there, that opportunity really wasn't in the, in the book, but it's now this thing that can happen via the podcast, which has been exciting. So I also have a follow-up question to that and to your answer, which was brilliant. It's how have you since then involved the people who inspired this book 
in this touring and in this talking to audiences? Yeah, as much as I can, I try to turn these into opportunities for the people to be heard uh, alongside whatever modest uh, introduction I would do. So sometimes these have been, sometimes they're just book talks, but as often as I can, I bring three or four people onto the stage and um, it's really a conversation amongst the four of us um, that begins maybe with where some of the reflections they had in the book, but goes much further so that the conversation lives on beyond it. I mean, the book is intended to provoke a conversation in readers in the Bay Area and then readers throughout the nation and the globe who are probably going through very similar things. And so to have the events also be mirroring that is really helpful. This also, some of these interviews also in the podcast will also need to be revisited in some way and updated in some way. So it's exciting in, in the same sense to sort of see where people are, um, a year later or two years later or three years later. It took a couple of years to do the research for the book. Was there some hesitancy from the people within that community, you know, that weren't the major politicos, weren't the major tech people, you know, the everyday people that you're talking about, you know, how'd you go about finding an Uber driver or a cab driver? Yeah, there's, um, in this work, I'm happy to work with people anonymously and protect their identity. So there are a handful of people who um, aren't in are, are under alias and where I've changed um, some of their identifying details. And I can see that in the introduction of the book. There's no that's not that's a sort of like a, not a secret. It's an open part of the process. That's one way of working on it. Um, another way of doing it is 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 the fact that most people. Um, on some level, if you are doing this work right, and I think if you are presenting what you, your process will be, you're really there to be a vehicle to their subjective point of view. And if you're able to show that work in your past, and you're able to demonstrate the fact that you're, you're, you're pretty committed to doing that moving forward, you, there, there's really little risk in, in somebody who feels like they have a story to tell to come forward if you're the right person who's coming at it with the right approach. So I often say there's a lot of serendipity in this work where, um, you know, there are a number of people that I met through the course of the research process where I was either like the cab driver, I was in his cab. Um, one, of the one of the stories in the book that I found most moving was a guy named uh, Tony Sagrado, who uh, was a juvenile justice advocate who would stand up in court. He was a social worker and stand up in court and advocate for kids to be either not given a jail sentence or to be able to uh, wait with their family, be in their community and in school um, while they were awaiting sentencing. Um, and so he had a rather profound effect on the way that work was done in the Bay Area, um, was celebrated by Governor Brown and, and Eric Holder, the AG at the time. Um, and, and he uh, because he has a sort of health incident in his family and needs to take on a second job, he becomes a prison guard in juvenile prisons at night. So he's sort of keeping kids out of prison during the day and then locking them up at night. And that story to me was like the metaphor of what we're doing in the Bay Area in a way that we have this community that's been held together by people and that we don't, we've, we've sort of subjected ourselves to um, a very rational and quantified, at, at least... Uh, metric-oriented community that's come in as the tech community and that this missing piece of people who are really able to hold the community together are having to kind of make these Faustian bargains to be able to either stay in the community, flee, or find some kind of footing. Anyway, the only reason I meet him is because I'm working in his organization for a whole day interviewing um, kids that his organization works with um, as I was trying to get some of their stories into the book. 
I don't think if I had done that work the way I had done it, he would have come for it. At the end of the day, he said, do you want to interview me? That had never been part of the plan. I barely even knew he had a, the story that he had to tell. And hmm. we then spent sort of four hours late into the evening just talking. So some of that is, I think, um, that serendipity is sort of comes from just the ability to be seen as as caring more about the other person's story than your own project in a way. Can you talk a little bit about, like, during the incubator, you would say a lot, like, I'm trying to get out of the way, right? Yeah. And this yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. along the same line. Yeah. So can you talk about, like, how you struck a balance? Because as the podcast host, you're our guide, right? Yes. You're kind of at the center of things. I mean, this was the struggle for me throughout the incubator, I think, was figuring out um, – you know, the book has these sort of brief introductions before each person's voice, but then it's really just them running mm -hmm. with pages mm -hmm. after that. And the need for a podcast to be sort of authored by somebody and guided by somebody mm -hmm. is a convention of what is a very early form. And there are a few places where you could, you could look at Love and Radio, you could look at this is actually happening where you don't have that guide in the same way. But then the structure and the aesthetic has to be very strong. And I still think it was, for me, um, it took time to realize that, like, how do I want to put this? That th it was useful, as particularly when I started threading voices together, that my point of view on the issues was something I had to take better ownership of and more confidence in mm. um, than I had even when I started doing the book, which I think was a growth moment for me through the course of the incubator. It was probably the most profound growth moment for me was realizing oh, that wow. I could step in front and take um, a different kind of ownership of it, um, which has been great. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So how has your background in law kind of mingled with your um, interest in media and in podcasting? This is a very personal question as I'm considering law yeah. school. <laughs> so, look, I think one of the challenges of the profession of law is what it doesn't do well. And what it doesn't do well is um, recognize the grayness and messiness of the lives it wants to regulate or speak to. And I, I had a very different journey to law school than a lot of my classmates. I had a, a, a almost 10-year career in uh, working overseas in human rights and then doing some of this work um, uh, on rights-based questions in tech. And so I, I had been in East Timor. I'd been in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'd spent almost three years in Pakistan um, doing that work and came into um, a community of, of students who were, who were either directly from school directly from undergrad or had a, had a kind of two years. And then suddenly we're given these cases which are like, well, how do you feel about like uh, a cell phone and the fact that a third-party company just owns all your data and sees it? Um, have you have you relinquished your reasonable expectation of privacy at that point because you've already let a third party look at sort of everything you communicate and everything you own and every photo you have and every you know contact you have? And for many people who are much younger than me, that was a sort of like I don't know that I have issues about this. Um, was their initial reaction? It was a little bit before we'd gone through this recent post-2016 cycle um, where some of the stuff had come up. It was, it was, it was still five or six years ago. So many people had, a, had reactions to questions about like torture and habeas and um, uh, the war on terror where just their political lives had been spent in an America that had only fought terrorists, you know, whose primary foreign policy preoccupation had been 
the struggle with terrorists. Now, they may be radically opposed to that, or they may be warmer and more comfortable with it, depending on where their politics were. But I remember a, an America that, that I grew up in, an America that didn't do any of those things. An America that had no Al-Qaeda and didn't have any great enemies, really. The America post that gap between the Cold War. And so it was interesting to be somebody who had very much been in the mess of life, very much been in the grayness of things, but to see the law be so inarticulate about it somehow. Mm. And to see the legal training not be able to sort of close that gap. It wasn't enough to take students who were very young and just shove them into clinics and, and think that they were doing that learning. So do you think that informs your storytelling? All this work that I try to do in media, whether it's books or podcasts, is my way of sort of bringing answers to that. So the law, you know, there's there's no way in which this podcast is speaking um, directly to law and policy in a very didactic way. But hovering around this is this question of like, how do we want to organize life? What are the, what are the values of um, the rules in the society that we want to be, be in? And And... From those values, how do we want to organize some principles about how we're going to engage one another and be responsible to one another and what are the contracts we're making with each other? And that, from that, you can build law. From that, you could build um, regulation on these things. But I think the, the, the ex-ante question of, like, what does it feel like to be in the middle of this and how do we want it to feel very differently for one another in a room, in a train, in a, on a block together, in a city, all of those questions, I think, we need we need to know deeply what that feels like viscerally before we can get to the question of of what rules do we want to make about it. And then also thinking mm -hmm. about the Bay Area and who I know from the Bay Area. Yeah. They are poor black people. They yeah, are right. people who are being pushed out um, and directly impacted by gen in, by gentrification and Silicon City and all this mm -hmm. tech. Where do you see that being kind of reckoned with and dealt with outside of? what you're doing. I guess I would want to hear more about the people a part of the project, but I know you're the person we're yeah, interviewing. I, I think that's you know? right. And and look, I think I think to your question, the thing that you I see most amongst vulnerable communities, whether they be communities of color, whether they be working communities, whether they be veterans, whether they be the elderly, whether they be the mentally ill, is that the ways in which a small city could allow people to live close to family and community and live close to the organizations that matter to that and institutions, whether that be um, a nonprofit or a school or a church, um, and allowed them, therefore, to organize meaningfully, let's say, without needing that to be political in all forms, but also politically then. When you atomize a community across nine counties or you atomize a community to three hours away and some people are still white knuckling it and holding on in the mission or the Fillmore or the Richmond or whatever neighborhood that they're in in San Francisco and almost everybody else is now in Antioch an hour and a half away in Tracy two hours two hours and a half away um in, in Sacramento maybe even um where they're very different cultures where they're very different political cultures where they're very different ideas about what it means to be a black person or Latinx person or whatever it is, whatever you are identifying as in a, in a community in the Central Valley, it will be very different from San Francisco's ability or Oakland's ability to see you. I think one of the reasons that there has been so much political trauma and disorientation there is because those communities no longer can organize it quite the way that they could. 
And so we can talk about the economics of it, which I think are very important um, and are the driving cause of all of this. But the consequence of it is the social fabric and therefore the sort of political voice that we can hear is weakened. Um, and that could come in the form of, you know, I think one of the people in the book, there are a couple of people in the book who speak to this and whether it's, there's a kid who grew up in the tenderloin in the book who speaks to this and there's a, um, Tony Sagrado to some degree speaks about this, a homeless advocate speaks to this, but there's this way in which you've seen even just the homeless youth population in San Francisco shift from being, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a community that was predominantly like white punk kids living on the street in a kind of their own organized community to now being black kids that you wouldn't necessarily identify as homeless because they are taking care of themselves differently. They are not self-identifying as homeless. They are not necessarily spending a night on the street, but they might find a way to get into a home or onto a couch uh, or into an SRO. They're they're saving money and spending it differently. They're getting to school or they're working in, in a different way. Um, and that shift has meant that the policies around homelessness are still catching up with that. They're designed for one community, let's say, around homeless youth, and it hasn't caught up to this other one. And same, to the same degree, there's policies around the elder sort of homeless communities, which traditionally look for dual diagnosis cases, which were um, folks who are drug addicted and have a mental illness. So they begin as mentally ill and then get hooked on drugs or, or the reverse. That is an important part of the the constituency for any sort of homeless programming in San Francisco, but there's a growing number of families living in vehicles, families that, you know, have jobs in San Francisco, would not be able to find an equally well-paying job in two hours away, wherever they're going to, where they can next afford a home, um, who've been evicted and um, don't want to commute necessarily and be away from their kids, who want to keep their kids in schools potentially um, that are better in San Francisco, who are living on the street. And San Francisco has been unable to pass any kind of affordable housing bills in the years that I have lived there and since, they were able to pass a bill that mandated that a handful of parking lots would be safe havens for these families and cars, mostly so that they just didn't get ticketed by the police because they were otherwise getting ticketed so frequently. Mm -hmm. And also because they were unsightly for neighborhoods that found them um, inconvenient. <clears throat> so I don't know if that's answering mm -hmm. some of what you're looking for, but I think in the book, you also have on the flip side, a number of people who are... Um, I think speaking to the degree of um, the ways in which that crucible that's sort of always been in the Bay Area of these economic forces and therefore has been a part of people who've been there for a long, long time have been able to, you know, we went through, we went through this in the early aughts after the dot-com bust. Um, this is a much more pernicious cycle, but it's not, it's not radically in kind very different from the price spikes and evictions in that during that period of time. And you have people who sort of grew up, grew up during that who are able to, who are now sort of inside the tech industry and organizing in a very different way around diversity and inclusion or around community outreach. So I think there's a degree to which also all this good energy from San Francisco, all the things that in the Bay Area have made it iconically a very liberal, um, I will put quotes around inclusive because I think they're, they're, as as inclusive narratively as as it's been, it's it's also very much exclusive part of America, and America is is what it is. 
but to the degree to which the Bay Area has a tradition, either narratively or actually, of being part of these sort of like important tentpole moments for the nation of being able to recognize um, different kinds of communities in their inclusive journey in, in, in America. It has been able, therefore, to create some people that I think are really remarkable leaders of what the Bay Area needs right now. And so it's just really just a question of creating enough center of gravity, enough momentum, enough common ground for, for projects at scale to happen. Because there are great things that are happening and everybody wants to do something good in the Bay Area. And even major, you know, VC investors and angel investors are, are talking about the sickness in the community and wanting to do something good. They just, you know, their perspective about it will be a series of niche philanthropic initiatives as opposed to often anything that would really tackle. Kind of unilateral. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's an yeah. it's a huge crisis. Yeah. So a huge crisis needs huge solutions and coordination regionally, and that's a very difficult thing. The Bay Area is also opposite to New York, where New York is five counties governed as one city, and the Bay Area is nine counties, where each sub municipality within it is governed separately as well. So it's just completely fragmented mm -hmm. in terms of political coordination in the ways that we're able to do a, a handful of things here better. So um, what are your what are your hopes, like coming out of the incubator and working on this podcast and having the book, like what do you, what do you hope for in terms of change or big solutions? And how does this story, these voices and your work in the podcast fit into that? I think that, I think the incubator has been, a, it's, well, number one, I just want to say, like, I, I don't know, I know you're interviewing everybody else, but it's worth just saying how remarkable it was to be in the room with six other projects, five other projects that were hugely different from one another, um, but had such vision and talent and um, energy around them. And it really was important to my process through the incubator to just keep being refreshed by people who had different approaches to the making of work. Um, and, mm -hmm. it, and it ranged from yeah, you know, it would it, I, without calling anybody out, but everybody had a moment in the room for me where I was just like, "Oh, I oh, that's an incredible thing to do that I need to go home and think about the the ways in which I can and can't be like that." And there was tape that was being brought in that was amazing, and so that was, I think, for somebody who's been with a project for about a year, and and sometimes you can you can get into a bit of a rhythm with something or a rut with something. Um, that was hugely inspiring, and then I think in the long run, I actually started hearing these voices again, and it's just going to be a very different process to build yeah. this from the book. And it's an exciting one where I think there's, we're still in the middle of the story. The book's been able to capture a kind of thing, hmm. but in, in the way the podcast is an exciting opportunity to sort of keep approaching this question over and over again over time. I also think that, may, that there are ways in which we still need to do keep doing field work because I think hmm. the opportunity to do episodes that aren't focused necessarily on a person, but are on on these thematic questions will be ways yeah. to continue to bring the ball forward. And I also think it's an exciting chance to, for, for, for me to step into the project in a deeper way and also to step out of it at times too. I, I'm excited by the prospect of building something where other people could come in um, and curate something about their perspective uh, about the bear, be in, be in my seat about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but use the platform of, of a sort of like oral history project that's looking at these things and, and share what they see through the interview work that they do. I love um, it. So, which is exciting for me to f figure out a way to sort of look at this as more of a team and a community to build over time than a, 
then a, a flag I have to continue waving. Um, so how do alone. we how do we keep tabs on your community? How do we follow you? How do we follow the project? That's a great question. So we're so I head out in in a couple of weeks to figure a, com- a couple of these things out. You know, the paperback comes out in in mid November, and so I'll be out in the Bay Area doing a bunch of the the um, touring for the book again. And we'll have a series of conversations with people that I think could be that team in a way and see if it's it's something we can get off the ground soon. And then, um, you know, I have all the sort of sad and anemic ways that I interact with social media, um, <laughs> uh, none of which are particularly enthusiastic, but all of which sort of exist as global Carrie from years ago when I was doing much more um, interactive work. Carrie, C-A-R-Y, like Carrie Grant, who's the, who is the person I was named after. But who Very I look, sophisticated. But who I look nothing like. Uh, so, um, uh, and behave nothing like uh, either. Uh, I have none of his charm and none of his hair. Wait, wasn't um, he the one so, who was actually, um, though, Cockney? And then he moved to Hollywood and, like, no, changed his whole really? thing? Yes. That is wild. Yes. So my brother's named after Spencer Tracy. I'm named after Cary Grant. And my son, we couldn't figure out his name, and we were going to name him Indiana Jones Batman um, for the longest time. Literally, we had a we we didn't know what gender he was, and we thought he was going to be born. We were like pretty committed to the idea that he was going to be a girl, and so had this great name lined up if he was a girl, and then um, and had Indiana Jones Batman as our <laughs> joke boy name for the boy we certainly weren't having, and he came out as as a boy, and so we called him Harrison for Harrison Ford. All right. Um, and <laughs> nice. so he's the sort of third in the in the named after actors line. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank Gary. you guys. This was so fun. So good seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's also the strange moment of being interviewed uh, as an interviewer. So um, <laughs> you guys, you guys were gentle. Thank you. Do you mind if we share like a little clip of your show with the listeners? No, not at all. No, no, no. All right. Thank we're going to play a little something. Thank you. Good. So Thank you. <laughs> When I look, I'll tell you, I'm sitting in, the other night, I'm sitting in front of the Kabuki Theater in my hybrid taxi. I see these two young women come out of the theater, and I know what they're doing. They're pulling out their cell phone, and they called either Uber or Lyft, and they're kind of looking at me, and I'm sitting there waiting. But I know that if, if you cancel an order with Uber or Lyft, they charge you $5. If yeah. you're not there when you show up, they charge you. So sure enough, two, three minutes later, up drives this big, fucking Chevy Tahoe or wherever it was, yeah. a Cadillac Escalade, some enormous vehicle. And these two girls go scurrying off in the street, cross street, and hop into this vehicle. And, you know, if you would interview those girls, sure as shit, they'd be, you know, global warming, you know, yeah, yeah. let's cut, let's reduce green, and let's, we really got to do something. This is our future. And yet here they are, right in front of them, doing mm-hmm. something stupid. People talk about Uber being so high-tech and so progressive. I'm like, man, I've been doing this shit for 15 years. You know, credit cards, another thing. We were the first state to accept credit cards, GPS-based dispatch, workers' comp insurance for drivers, all these things that I work on, clean vehicles, you know, the greenhouse gas reduction mandate, they're all being undermined by Uber and Lyft, which don't do any of those things. Some people say, oh, well, I take Uber and Lyft because it's cheaper. Well, first of all, is it really cheaper? But then of all... You know, it didn't start out that way. It started out being more expensive, but now they're just trying to destroy us, and so they're using their billions that they've raised from all these big venture yeah. capitalists to destroy us. And then what's going to be left when, when that is all over with? You know, 
there won't be any taxi system. It'll just be these private companies. Do you think you'll be able to stay in the city? Or do you well, as long as I can have this rent-controlled apartment, you know, and I'm single and I don't have children or anything like that, and I mean, I can afford my lifestyle, which is not a real highfalutin lifestyle. Yeah. I have my books and CDs, and that's about it. I'm not a materialistic person. I don't have a car. You know, I walk three miles to work every day. I take the Muni, and so if I sit down and think about it, maybe I would stress out more about my yeah. financial situation, but that's why I don't sit and think about it too much. Wow, I just feel so many things. Um, yeah. Particularly, I love the intersection of law and media, as you have shamed me for my interest in law Oh, I didn't mean to before. shame you. I did not mean to um, shame you. I, I think law school is wonderful. I also am fascinated by this idea of just really delving into a city. And it's something that I find myself doing organically with Chicago, of course, and um, actually where my grandparents are from, so uh, Sunflower, Mississippi. So it's really, really interesting to see just the ways that someone can archive aspects of a city and its history that isn't common. So, I love the way that um, I'm a big believer in having a background that may not like make sense or sort of like, or like on linear, paper. right? Yeah. But and how that can sort of surprise and inform your work in unexpected ways and really enrich the creative work that you do. So I really appreciate that Carrie just sort of organically found his way to all these different things, um, and but all aligned to this one passion, this sort of human rights advocacy. So I think that's a, yeah. It makes me hopeful for post-grad. <laughs> yeah, so get your law degree, <laughs> do the media, write the poems, do it all. So what's next Six. for you? That's a great question, Ro. Might be law school, might be filmmaking. Who knows? Um, but actually, <laughs> I guess I'll, in the near term, <laughs> in the near term, um, I'm actually doing a lot of music recently. Yes. Um, Are you singing? I am singing. Oh, I'm obsessed. I need to hear the clips immediately. I want links. I love this. That would be provided when they are made and created. But yeah, I've just been um, doing a lot of things creatively that I hadn't had the gumption to do before. I am working with a theater company, the New York Neo Futurists. Check us out. 84th East uh, 4th Street. Um, that is doing really phenomenal work, and I've been writing a lot with them. Yeah, so, you know, just kind of looking ahead, but not too far ahead, as I don't want to make myself very anxious. But, you know, wrapping up my junior year and really developing myself creatively. And speaking of developing oneself, it's always important to also think about how you develop your personal brand. Really? And a big part of your brand is your website. Really? I hadn't thought about that. Website. You don't have a website? I do not have a website. You, okay, so, so the first thing you're going to do. No, no, no. I have one that is actually free. If you go to Wix.com, type it in. It okay. will take you to an array of gorgeous templates. So you need a website for your personal creative self. But if you want to make another one for your podcast, Pseudo Millennial, you can find templates there. They got you. It's free. Don't worry about it. I mean, you can go Primo, premium website for a little bit more money. But uh, if you want to do the freebie, that's okay, too. So check it out. I will definitely check out Wix.com. Jerusalem, it's so good to have you in the studio. You bring that sparkle. So good to be back. All right. We'll see you next time. 
You're listening to LabCast, brought to you by Wix and the NYU Production Lab. Executive producer Katie Shepard, associate producer Anna Van Dyne. LabCast is produced in partnership with NYU Abu Dhabi and the Music Technology and Sound Recording Group. Head of production, Matteo Marciano. Assistant head of production, Yvonne Budnick. Sound engineering by Yvonne Budnick. Music by Abby T. Special thanks to WNYU and shout out to John Tintori. 